The If Then podcast is brought to you by If Then Ventures, a community of attorneys, regulatory professionals, and all-around builders who help founders and startups make legal strategy a competitive advantage. It should go without saying, but let it be said, absolutely nothing in today's conversation is legal, financial, or any other type of advice. However, the If Then community is great at connecting founders and startups with the right attorney, policy professional, or strategic advisor for their needs. If you're interested in joining or partnering with the If Then community, send me an email at david at ifthen.vc. Okay, that's out of the way. Let's get to the show. Yes, we are back. You thought we were never coming back, but the If Then podcast, we will never truly leave your hearts and minds. And now we are not going to leave your ears. I am your host, David Ikenna Adams, the you know founder of If Then Ventures, and just a guy who loves talking payments. And that's what we're going to be doing today with my illustrious guest, who I am very pleased to welcome to the return of the If Then podcast, author, founder, just kind of multi-talented renaissance payments woman, Sophia Goldberg. Sophia, how's it going? It's going great. I'm uh, excited to be part of this rebirth and return of the Then podcast and here and jam on, on payments with you. Wonderful. You know, this podcast traditionally, this is a podcast about um, kind of like legal strategy, regulatory strategy, policy. Uh, a lot of times we talk about folks' careers and being very intentional in career choices and how kind of knowledge of these sorts of things can be used in alternative ways. Certainly like as a lawyer by trade, that's kind of how I've come to look at this lens. But I came into the world of payments and that's how I got introduced to you um, kind of in the fintech payments circuit. Can you talk to us just, I guess, generally about who you are, how and why you got into payments. And then of course, we're going to talk about your book, The uh, Field Guide to Global Payments by author Sophia Goldberg. Yeah. Give, give us a quick intro. Happy to. So I'm a now founder, entrepreneur, and author based in the San Francisco Bay Area, but really first and foremost, I'd say a payments nerd. So fell into the world of payments a little over five years ago, joined Adyen, uh, worked across commercial and product teams, but fell into payments in a roundabout way, I think, as most of us do, and really realized I love the physical mechanisms of the global economy. And payments is how money moves. It's how commerce happens. It's how everything from giant companies sending billions over, over wires to individuals sending you know pennies on Venmo and everything in between. And just got very obsessive. Tell us what is, you mentioned you joined Adyen and kind of got into payments. What is Adyen? Adyen's uh, a large PSP based out of Amsterdam, but global uh, acquiring platform bank. Think of it, you know, if this is mainly startup listeners, it's the Stripe for enterprise. So, you know, the Netflix and Etsy's of the world. Stripe is a, obviously a very large, prominent company, but like, what is, you mentioned a few things, PSP acquiring, you know, Stripe for enterprise, but like, like what do these things do? These are payment providers that help people process a payment. Can, can you just kind of talk about what that means from a perspective of this business is working with this business and how they help them? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of different business models within payments of how to be a payment provider. So if you're a merchant and you want to collect payments from your customers, if you're in the U.S., that's probably going to look like credit and debit card payments. 
you need to connect to the network. So Visa, MasterCard, you need to connect to the networks to connect to your customers issuing banks and merchants themselves are not going to integrate directly into Visa, um, deal with, you know, ISO messages, everything like that, not to mention, you know, licensing, bring products, everything like that. Um, and so the role of either a gateway or a PSP payment service provider is to be that like force multiplier that handles a lot of the complexity on the back end and helps merchants unlock payments. Got it. So, you know, you're helping people accept a payment, you're helping people handle their money and doing it in a way so that they don't have to dive quite so deep into all the nitty gritty aspects of how we move money either in the US or through other systems in other in other places. And I, I want to dig into a lot of those components. You have written a book about all of this stuff. Like, so <laughs> yep. what, what is the book about? Why did you write the book? The book is, uh, the book I wished I had five, five and a half years ago when I was starting in the payments industry, really something as a reference guide to give you a high level understanding of all of the different systems at play. I started it during the pandemic because I reread payment systems in the US, which is a great book, but it's really not an accessible entry guide. Um, and it's US centric. Um, Anatomy of a Swipe is another great one, but very card centric. And so at my time at Addy, and I'd say half, if not more of my time was spent on non-card payment methods, payments outside of the US. And so there's all this knowledge that I really wanted to share and realized a book was the format I wished I'd had. So that's the, the route I went. So covering cards, non-card methods, regulatory and legal, which uh, my friend Matt Janiga, who's general counsel at Lithic wrote, because he is way more qualified than I am to speak on that stuff. And workshopped the terms of uh, the table of content with a lot of people and got to a book that I'm now really proud of. That's amazing. There's a, there's a few things you mentioned there that really resonate with me as someone who, I don't know, two years ago taught myself a lot about payments, essentially from scratch and the resources that I went to. A couple of the books that you mentioned were basically the first places that I turned as well as like online resources, ongoing resources, podcasts, you know, hopefully like this one, maybe aspirationally. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, people on Twitter, you mentioned Matt Janiga. He was actually one of the first people who I can remember like learning stuff from on Twitter and like blogs and, and other forms of hashtag content. Now you mentioned <laughs> like there being like a, a, you wanted it in book format. So you didn't, you know, go into the content game. Why, why is the book the format you thought this should be? Uh, mainly hubris. I thought a book would be easier. <laughs> um, everyone says, you know, self-publishing so accessible. Um, I thought it would be much more finite, which in a way it is. Um, I'm not going to be, you know, pumping out a chapter each week. And there were yeah. weeks that went by that I didn't write anything, um, which I've learned is normal in the book writing process. And for me, it was something that you can hand to a new starter, something you can have on your desk, look at the index and to kind of give it more scope and structure. Okay. So we've got a book, you know, let's say I'm, I'm going to hire someone for a company that I work at, whether it's a payments company or, you know, a, an e-commerce company, and we need to understand payments. What do you want people to take away from reading this book and, and who's using it? Really the language and the concepts that'll help them dive deeper on their own. So I think it's enough depth for a lot of people that are on like the outskirts of the industry, but it's also like, the the vocabulary, the concepts to help you be able to dive deeper if you just don't know what you don't know. All right. Well, you heard it here first, people. If you need to learn payments for whatever reason and learn how payment systems work, dive into the field guide for global payments, get a nice understanding of 
payment systems and how money moves and what it means when you're using Venmo or you're sending an ACH or a wire or um, you know using Google and Apple Pay and things like that. You're a self-described payments nerd. Talk to me, like if, if someone came to you, some young wide-eyed person came to you and was like, I'm an aspirational payments nerd. What are you, what are you going to talk about? What, what's something about like payments and money movement that grabs you that, you know, you can create a new payments nerd uh, that you would talk to them about? I think what really did it for me was like the, the breadth of global methods and the different ways people pay. And from like a you know quasi anthropological point of view, the history of how different payment systems came about in different countries, a lot of African countries, we see a hop, skip and a jump over the card networks to, you know, mo- mobile payments, things like that. I think I would tell people observe around you. Like I, you know, full always take note of what terminal is at a register or what cards my friends whip out. So just observe and see what like is interesting. And then also start learning about different ways people pay. And I think that's really important from like the, the psychological anthropological perspective of if you're wanting these people to be your customers, you should understand them well. And that includes how they want to pay. But then it's just like also really cool how the innovation has happened um, so differently in different countries. Yeah, you you mentioned something here that I wanted to ask you about, which was like when you're out in the world as 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 a as as a payments nerd, like what are the things that you see? I think that are apparent to you that other people don't necessarily see. One example for me is I remember when Cash App started rolling out, like mm. a yo pay with Cash App, uh, I don't know wallet QR code version of of making a payment, and I remember being at a, like a blue bottle or something like that, and using it and the cashier being like, you're the first person that's ever used that. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I only used it because I was curious on just like the experience, but like, what are some things you see when you're like, I don't know, out in the world or online or wherever? Um, I mean, the, the new toast terminals where they bring it to the table. So it's more like the European or non-American mm, experience of like yeah. paying your, your bill at the end of a meal. I always notice. And I, it's like, so dumb, but I would just go, Ooh, a toast terminal. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's the nerd in you coming out. Um. <laughs> and thankfully I surround myself with a lot of people who are either very, um, comfortable with me doing that or also go, ah, that's a nice one. And then they hand it to you and you turn it around and everything like that. I think also like the tap to pay, um, yes. there's a lot of places outside our like, you know, Bay area coastal bubble. Like I was in Colorado a few years ago and I was an early Apple pay faithful person. And I haven't carried my real wallet in a while. Yeah. Um, and I was just looking at my real wallet the other day. It literally has dust, like a layer of dust. <laughs> on it. Yeah. My, my credit card expired and I didn't realize cause it's just been in my literal wallet. Yeah. Um, but I saw that they had like the little logo that I could tap to pay. And so I held my phone up and she gave me this look like I was a crazy person. I was like, Oh no, this is how this works. Yeah. Moments like that are pretty cool. Wow. We think like everyone uses Apple pay and that's not the case. Yeah. When you get too used to only needing to have your phone around and then you get to the place that doesn't have Apple Pay, there's like a devastating, like, oh shit, like what do I Well, I do have a funny solution to that, which is I have all of my cards numbers memorized. And so I just ask them if they'll let me key in my card number. Wow. (laughs) And they do let me. Um, So I'm able to pay. It's more expensive for the merchant, unfortunately, as MKE transactions are. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I do have a little sadness around that sometimes. But what, yeah. Are you getting weird stares from the people at the like, you want me to what now? And you're like, trust me, no, I know what I'm doing. Like, <laughs> no, not really. Cause I think they're like, we want to like move the line along and make the sale. And I'm like, hey, can I just like hold the terminal and punch yeah. my card number in? And they're like, um, okay. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think there's high confidence in their eyes that it's going to be authorized. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but it works. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the like European model of, or it really is like, I think outside the US, because almost everywhere I've seen this and I haven't been to Europe a ton, but what I'm going to ask you a lot of like, what's the deal with this payment <laughs> thing? Uh, so what's the deal with the difference between like, why in the US is it like, we're taking it back, we're bringing you the thing, you know, the bill, then we're going then and with the tip line. And then, you know, there's this multi-step process here in the US, whereas everyone else, they're, they're bringing out a terminal to you, even if it's like the same terminal. Do you, do you have like a payments nerd explanation for these I I wish I did. Like, I always chalk it up to like the long tail and like Americans, like, especially small business owners aren't going to just like replace terminals. And, and so it's really just like a long tail issue, but I don't have a, have a great reason for that. Like I remember I lived in London for a few years and being able to use Apple pay on the tube years ago was so nice. Yeah. And my like British debit card was also tap to pay. And I was like, huh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I have, I have a, uh, a, a tube slash subway related question for you, but that will come up. That will come up later. Okay. Um, what I'd like to do is just kind of like shift to innovations in payments. You are building a payments company today. What's happening in the world of payments that you think is interesting that is moving things forward for business, for consumers, for life? What I think is really interesting, like next frontier stuff within payments. I mean, one is like the, the crypto DeFi stuff, which we can yeah. also touch on yeah. later, which I know is near and dear to your heart, um, though early innings. And I think the other side is payments for the last, you know, 50 to 70 years has been really one size fits all. Um, like the card network model is one size fits all the way PSPs have been, it's, you know, they serve a huge range of different merchants. And I think, you know, verticalization, I know has been a, you know, hot term the last few years. I still think we're early on some of that stuff. And I think different solutions for different models. So everything from, we're seeing a lot of like fleet cards, startups. I think that's pretty interesting. All right. I'm going to ask you to break down a few of these things. So if I'm, for instance, buying your book, one of the things you're going to do is break down for me how a card payment works. Mm -hmm. And we have Visa, we have banks, you know, your quick pitch version of like, what are these things? For me, I'm a consumer. I have a card. I scan it. I swipe it. I do whatever. These things have changed over the years. But for me, I still like, I have a card. I pay for something. Like what is actually happening? Yeah. So I, I like to start with the question of how do you think any merchant has the language and trust and ability to call your small credit union and get the money. And like, that's the end-to-end -end problem that networks, PSPs, acquirers solve. And so it's really that coordination effort of like, I, I it's kind of like a cat whisker diagram I do with like the networks in the middle and the acquiring bank and the issuing banks and the, the consumers and the merchants. But really it's whether you're a merchant or a consumer or business, you have a banking proxy, which can either be your issuing bank or the acquiring bank. Those then speak to the networks and have a way that they speak, have a way that they deal with disputes, have a way that they settle funds through the clearinghouse function of the networks. Um, and so you can really think of it as like that step-down mechanism to make it so millions of merchants and billions of humans can move funds in a high trust and organized way. 
Got it. So if I'm understanding this correctly, I have, I, I'm David, I have a bank. I have Chase Bank and Chase Bank is like, yeah, <laughs> everyone can, has Chase. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you can have some money. You can, you can spend some money, whether that's debit from my actual bank account or, yep. you know, credit that they're advancing to me. What's happening is Chase is effectively paying the bank of the merchant wherever I'm shopping. I'm at Whole Foods. I'm buying some, I don't know why I was going to say kombucha, but like, uh, I don't even drink drink kombucha, but, uh, you're um, buying it for me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm buying Sophia bottles of kombucha (laughs) and my bank chase is going to send money to Whole Foods bank, you know, Bezos bank and trust. And, uh, (laughs) the way that they can communicate with each other is through these, card networks. Is that, is that like generally correct? correct? Yeah. So to like break it down a little more step-by-step, it's like you swipe or tap your card. That information is encrypted, sent to their payment provider. So whoever they use that payment provider has acquiring licenses to be able to talk directly to say visa. They send that transaction to visa who, you know, looks up your card number. So the first six digits of your card, I won't go too deep here. It's called the bin. The first digit tells you what card network it is. So if it's for, it's a visa kind of things like that. Um, and it also says who the issuing bank is. So they say it's, see, it's what, Bezo bank. Yeah. <laughs> Bezos bank and trust. Bezos yeah, bank and trust. Well, I guess yeah. this is your card. So it's chase. They send right. chase the message and say like, Hey, is David good for this? You know, $8. And if they say, sure he is, then it starts like the series of events where that money is debited from your account on your statement. Uh, a few days later, that gets settled by the networks into um, the Bezos bank at their acquirer and then out to them. And so that's how it flows through. Yeah. So a, a lot of the things that you're touching on are kind of these peripheral aspects of a payment that enable, I guess, security, security of moving money. So you mentioned it's not just that Chase is sending money to Bezos Bank and they're like, yeah, great. There's an identity component to this. There's like a risk management component to this. There's fraud. And so in the ways that the banks who set up these messaging protocols to talk to each other, they want to know, okay, is this, I'm going to extend credit, this guy, David, uh, how, how are we confirming it's him? And I guess it's at that point where we've seen these various evolutions in how we experience a card payment from swipe it, you, you know, stick it in with the, uh, the chip. Dip. I think yeah, dip, dip is, I think, uh, we add, I mean, some people would say like you dip and I was like, I don't know if that's the when I correct dip, term. Dip, dip. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I like that. Okay. The chip, dip. chip dip, the chip dip, too much dip on your chip. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we have things like signing for something. Mm. Um, I have another question about that later, but, uh, are you so, going to ask about knuckle busters? Is that what it's called? So yeah. I, I do. Okay. All right. I love we're knuckle busters. We're going to get to that now. So I was going to, I don't know what to call it. I call it the like clunk clunk machine. Yeah. It um, can also be called that because yeah. of the sound it makes, but it could also like, you know, scrape your knuckles. Okay. So let's, let's actually talk about this. Cause I, I really wanted to talk about this. Let's say the year is 1998 and you're a pizza delivery. I mean, person. I used one in 2010 at my retail <laughs> job. <Okay. laughs> You don't have to go that far back. Okay. Well, I, I, okay, I had, we're at Blockbuster in 1998. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I had a long career delivering pizza for many different pizza delivery places. And we would taking credit cards, obviously, was hugely advantageous to our business. There was a period of time where the person would call in with their credit card and we would take down the information. And, uh, but there were other times where 
We just wanted to go Super to Super PCI compliant. <laughs> yeah, well, see, so I, this is what I want to dig into. Or you take the clunk clunk machine and uh, you have these like papers and there's like a carbon copy and you actually take their card and it's it's this like, I'm trying to physically describe it, but it's like a box with like a sliding mechanism that presses the card into the paper. And so you slide in, it's like chink and now you have an imprint of that person's card. So can you talk to me about like, what's the difference between them calling in with their phone and, or me going to the place with the clunk clunk machine and how do the like aspects of security and finality of messaging uh, uh, play into that? We have this, I'm using the same physical device and it's mostly the same as it was in 98 or 2010, but the, these mechanisms are just very different than we would use them today. That's a great question. I actually don't know. I assume like you use the the knuckle buster and you still end up like keying that in when you yeah. get somewhere at the end of the day. Like we used them. I worked, I sold running shoes in high school and we would use it when our point of sale system or connectivity would go down. You know, we'd like pull it out, pull out the box of carbon paper and like clunk, clunk. Um, yes. <laughs> but actually from a security perspective, I don't think it's that different. Maybe you're able to accept signature and that changes rates or something, but I'm not really sure who's going around and auditing, you know, those carbon copy papers. Probably no one, yeah. but um, <laughs> the, I guess like the mechanism uh, behind taking a payment, you're, you're sticking something in a machine is reading something from a super advanced chip Yeah. versus I wrote down some numbers on a piece of paper. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, or someone read some numbers to me on the phone. So like how how do I guess card networks or banks or whoever needs to determine yes this is a appropriate card transaction to be done? Yeah. Like what are the mechanisms that are happening there that they're thinking through this? So one concept that gets that you know the networks look at a lot is um, card not present or card present transactions. And so when you can have high confidence that like the card holder is present with their card. So when you're tapping the point of sale device, dipping your pin, anything like that, that's card present. When you do manual key entry, so typing it in, that could be there over the phone. That could be <laughs> me only having my phone trying yeah. to pay with Apple Pay. That counts as card not or counts as its own thing, but basically that and a lot of econ payments are card not present unless you do, you know, adding your CDV, which proves that you are with your card or you've just memorized it like I have. Yes. Um and that so I've memorized. I've yeah. memorized <laughs> and so I, I think it really gets to the point of like how they can trust it and then how they can charge rates for it, which is what it all comes down to right. is um if they don't have high confidence that it is the card holder with their physical card, it could just be card number someone bought online mm -hmm. and is calling in to pay with. So that transaction is going to be a little more expensive, but how that affects the knuckle buster, I don't know. I am assuming if you're able to, you know, get the signature, um, you're still probably able to get like point of sale rates, but I'm not right. sure. Yeah. We've talked a lot about cards and cards are certainly the dominant payment form in the United States. Uh, but there are other types of payment systems that are used widely elsewhere. Um, can you can you talk about some of the different ways people outside of the US pay for things? Of course, book is called the Field Guide to Global Payments. So yeah, talk to us about other ways of payments and how like those affect culture, consumers, businesses. 
I created um, what I call like the taxonomy of non-card methods for this reason, because I think there's a lot of uh, repeatable models globally in different countries. And so you kind of like know how one thing works and you can kind of spot it in another country like um, Konbini in Japan versus OXO in Mexico are pretty similar in terms of customer experience, flow of funds, merchant experience, everything like that. I think what was really interesting for me is how prevalent cash is as a payment method, mm. not, not just, you know, you know, going to the corner store and using cash, which is hugely normative still in the U S but for online purchases yeah. and whether that looks like getting a voucher code that you go and fulfill with or prepaying credits for something. Um, I think that always really cool and surprising. Um, and it has, you know, the benefit of access uh, or inclusion of those who are underbanked or non-banked into online economies. It's also just, you know, some people don't trust other aspects of the financial system and they'd rather do it that way. So I find that really interesting of like how much bank-based payment methods are used in the U.S. Paying someone over ACH is hard. Mm -hmm. But when I lived in the U.K., like you could just send your friend money to their bank account in your banking app. And like right. people would knew their bank account numbers to tell you. And it's the user experience we have with Venmo, but like just a bank to bank transfer and things like that, that I found really fascinating that then unlock commerce side things, everything like that. In, in the US, we're very heavily dependent on pull based payment systems. It seems like everywhere else where there is push based payment systems, and I'm going to ask you to describe the difference <laughs> between those two things, um, right. that the, the, the pull-based system seemed to require all these extra security protocols, which like kind of makes it more complicated. But I don't know. I'd, I'd love your thoughts on like, can you tell us what's a push system? What's a pull system? Uh, how do those affect like the way that the payment network works? Literally think about it as like we're sitting across the table and I have a chunk of change. And it's, do I push that to you and give you that money? So that's me initiating like a, um, a wire transfer to you. Or a pull payment would be like direct debit, where I say, here's my information. I'm giving you digital permission to reach across this table and like pull this out. And I'm trusting that you'll take like the right amount, everything like that. A check is a permission to pull. Yes. Um, so it looks like a push payment because I'm giving you this check. Right. But everything on the check is actually just giving you information and permission to pull that amount from my account. And so push payments are great because the receiver knows that person has those funds. They know they're coming, but like you said, pull payments are a huge part of, you know, especially like the American ecosystem. And that means you sometimes say now we have NSF or insufficient funds or that account has been closed. There's all kinds of fun fraud that can happen, overdraws, overdrafts. And so it makes the receiver have a lot less confidence it's this interesting thing where if a pull system, which like you mentioned, check or even a card payment, ACH, most of the time, I, as a person who's sending money or paying, I am giving my credentials to someone for them to take the money out of my account. Whereas in a push payment, that's more like, uh, I want to pay you, Sophia. So what's your, like, uh, uh, you're going to hand me your handle. So I'm, I'm going to, oh, I'm going to then push the money out of my account using your payment information. So yeah, uh, which is also how crypto works. Yes, exactly. So like, uh, you know, crypto, these are all push payments. We have some of these. Um, Can you imagine the insanity if you if someone has figured out pull payments? I mean, I had a conversation <laughs> around like trying to figure out some sort of crypto pull payment mechanism. But again, it, it, it gives me heartburn. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't really go anywhere. So 
actually the way online banking payments work with say ideal in the Netherlands is really similar. If you're paying on mobile, for example, um, you have an app switch. And so it redirects you to where you have to complete the push method and then it brings you back. So there is like in crypto, but also still in like fiat denominated currency uh, and transactions, this like very similar behavior of like, um, not just like leaving it up to the trust of the sender to like send us the money. It's like really a, a like highly optimized UX to like send someone and bring them back. Right. Okay. So uh, ideal, a, a payment system in the Netherlands involves kind of push payments um, similar to other banking type payment systems throughout Europe and in other places. Why do we, what, what's an advantage of a pull system? Because it seems almost inherently, not inherently, but like a pull system is significantly less secure because I am giving away my credentials for someone to take money out of my account. So then there needs to be all of these fraud and risk management things on both sides of the transaction to like make sure that everyone is still whole. Why are card payments this way, um, uh, uh, you know, checks this way? Why do we have these like pull systems as opposed to push systems? What it unlocks, which I think is interesting to, to think about and kind of the downside of some of these push methods is things like subscriptions. Mm -hmm. You can't do a subscription if you're going to like tell me every month, hey, can you come push this money? You can, but like you're going to yeah. have drop off. You're going to have like you're giving me an option every month yeah. to opt out or San forget. San Francisco Chronicle is not doing that 99 cent <laughs> thing and, and having me forget to cancel my subscription. Exactly. Yeah. And so so for things like subscriptions or, you know, utility bills, things like that, um, whether that's direct debit or a card payment, there's a huge amount of utility from the like merchant customer interaction of a pull payment. Going back to the topic of, I guess, like other payment systems, you mentioned things like bank to bank transfer systems that send you to your banking app to complete a push payment. Let's say uh, Elon colonizes Mars, but he is quickly overthrown <laughs> and there's a power vacuum. So we don't have his influence. Like what we eventually establish some sort of commerce and a payment system, like what payment system like takes hold, assuming we like have technology to do stuff. I think I'm more convinced colonizing Mars will be like Club Med. <laughs> you have to be like yeah. really rich to get there. So it's all inclusive once you get there. So you don't have to pay for anything? No, I think it's going to be like Club Med. Like not many people are going to make it to Mars. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be the hyper rich. And so it's going to be like, you know, unlimited lava flows at the swim up. I don't know. Caldera. <laughs> Interesting. Your take I, on Mars. Yeah, I think my take on Mars is like, as ridiculous as the, the idea that like humans will live on Mars. All right, well, I'm, I'm gonna readjust my prompt. <laughs> I have a special EMP that I, I hit. It's like one of those like uh, like reggae, reggae uh, ton horn buttons, but it destroys every <laughs> payment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it makes that sound and it destroys every payment network in the US. You, Sophia Goldberg, you know, uh, mm. the, the president, President Zendaya in 20, whatever is like, Sophia, please, uh, be my treasury secretary. <laughs> yes. And establish, Hell yes. <laughs> system. Uh, first that sounds like fun. Yeah. Uh, if she wants to call me, she can. Um, she's from the Bay area. She may be lurking around. <laughs> Was she listening to this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. 50 -50. Probably. Yeah. Um, I think I'd start with like a national identifier system okay. to make it a lot easier to see everyone's information from like a trust debt, all of those scenarios, because that's what a lot of the expensive parts of payments are, are for like risk, fraud, um, credit risk. And so I think if we solve that first, 
then there's like, you know, much easier way to extend credit to people. Um, and I think like an individual, a bank network with really easy account to account transfers, um, really easy disbursement functionality. Like I'm actually a fan of some settlement delays. I don't think everything needs to be super instant. Mm. Um, cause mm -hmm. that also, you know, bakes in risk protections, but I think I would like to see probably it be, look a little like the bank based system. Got it. So you started with identity. Mm -hmm. You want to have some mechanism of be of kind of the humanness, which kind of helps with like risk and uh, kind of knowledge of people. And then, then you have a kind of a bank based transfer system. Are these, are these yeah. push payments, pull payments, both? Like, I think both. Cause yeah. I think there's strong use cases for both. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if we start with like the identity side, it makes it really easy for um, welfare, for earned wage access. If, payments are cheap and easy and operationalized. So you have this like economy then where it's really easy to move funds around, have high confidence in who you're sending and taking funds from. I think that would be pretty slick. I like it. I like it. There's, you know, uh, uh, all my friends in crypto may see your national identifier system as a uh, slippery slope to, you know, some dystopia that that they're not into, but- um, I mean, they're into dystopias too. <laughs> yeah, that's fair, fair, totally fair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like all of this stuff can go either way, mm -hmm. right? Like information can be used for bad things as humans and bad people are wont to do. Um, but I think like focusing on the, like if we're in a perfect world and we're able to actually like unlock some of this functionality. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like your first comment about starting with identity is like, makes, I think, pretty clear sense, right? And it's something that is easy to forget and how identity is always tied in with your payments. But if you look at like the wallets and things like that, what's the first things like you sign up for an account and you get a username and my, that's you and you know you can you can pay or even in crypto you can have yeah you have your wallet identifier but you can get a ENS domain ENS name. yeah yeah um do you have an do you have an ENS? yeah Sophia with a zero Please send me All things. Right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> send me money. Sophia with the send, Crypto's send on all, sale. <laughs> send all your Luna to Sophia. Wow. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. Well, let's, I mean, let's talk about, since we're talking about like payment systems and things like that, um, uh, let's talk about crypto, crypto mm. and payments. Um, give me your takes. Let's, 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 let's battle it out. And uh, like, what are your thoughts on where it is, where it could go, where you think it should go? I, from a like, nerd perspective think crypto is awesome <laughs> um and i i think like some of the nft stuff is fun shout out crypto coven um i think there's a lot of future applications for blockchain and things like zero knowledge proofs for more like you know secure data or pci and mm -hmm. uh zero knowledge proofs could be like a really cool mashup um i think from a like commerce perspective i'm quite bearish still mm -hmm. i think there's a lot of people uh, like yourself, doing really interesting work to try and change that and make it uh, more accessible and normative. But I think until we either have crypto systems that aren't treated like securities, right. um, you're not going to be able to use it as like a medium of exchange in a serious, like scaled way for majority of consumers. Bitcoin comes out first crypto and it's, this is a payments network. Um, mm. This is a way for people to pay each other. It's uh, a borderless kind of like extra sovereign form of money that is permissionless so anyone can access it and this world of payments is much talked about but not really realized is that just because of the speculation of aspect is has the narrative shifted 
if if we didn't have this speculation thing, is the like, actual system, the network itself, is that like a useful thing, or is there a place that you know we could take it? Yeah, I, I think there are useful aspects of it, and I think um, you know the story that it's cheaper payments isn't true yet. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I think there's there's that. Um, I think there are use cases. I think for some of the online use cases, I think for things like remittances, I think yeah. the the cross border borderless gets really interesting, but can, I'm like very curious to see how that works because nations don't want capital flight. Um, there's regulators that either shut things down or you have like, you know, some com countries completely adopt Bitcoin, mm -hmm. it's a little wild, but I always like to bring up one of my favorite political economy concepts called the Mundell Fleming trilemma. Ooh. Um, and I think there's like one article, like academic article I've found that talks about it and crypto, but I haven't read it in a few years and would love to see more people in the space, but it's one of the like core tenets of economic policy, which is you can have monetary independence, financial openness or exchange rate stability, and you can only have two of the three. And so I think this is, you know, what we're seeing with some of the, you know, um, the crashes that are happening right now, it's like any economic system is interdependent on others. And you have to pick what you can control. Do you control the exchange rate? Do you control the openness? Who can be a part of it? Do you, um, are you like fully independent from other systems? You can't have it all. And maybe that aspect will change, but I think that's a pretty um, accepted part of how monetary systems function. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, in, in, you know, the crypto world outside of payments, we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, uh, contagion going on when it comes to lending and collateralization and yada, yada, yada. I would say that's outside the scope of this conversation. But <laughs> uh, one thing you mentioned is just like, you know, I, I go back to the borderless aspect of crypto and that, that, that's somewhat the point that mm. it's outside of government um governments have their monetary systems they have their payment networks um and with crypto i can send a stable coin to someone in nigeria very easily and they can get it instantly and that network is not tied to a government but it's tied to software what's like a final takeaway for us with respect to payments or things that like maybe we should know that a payment nerd can tell us that can just like help us in, you know, daily lives. Ooh, if you like a merchant and they ask if you'd like to pay with Visa or US debit, do US debit because it's cheaper for them. If you don't like them, pick Visa. There you go. So the old like, <laughs> the old like credit or debit Thing. Credit or debit, or sometimes the last you want to do pin debit or US debit. Um, it's cheaper for the merchant. So if you like them, use that. If you don't like them, use the visa option. There you go. Finally, a point to the credit or debit uh, question. <laughs> use your buying power to, to, to save or cost them extra pennies. <laughs> yes, you can help your favorite small business by paying with debit. Um, you heard it here first. Wonderful. Sophia. No one's ever said that before. <laughs> First time. Yeah. Sophia, it was fantastic having you on the pod. And Field Guide to Global Payments is a fantastic read. Everyone should buy it. If you work in or are looking to work in payments, fintech, or financial services, or you simply want a better understanding of how money moves around this ball we call Earth, do yourself a favor and pick up the Field Guide to Global Payments. Link to the book in the show notes. Sophia, thank you for doing us a favor and jumping on the pod. Thanks for having me. 
And to the If Then family, thanks for listening. If you're looking for more content, hop on the If Then Back catalog where we talk to interesting people doing interesting work that they're interested in. See y'all next time.